music this morning um, has been breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, the prayers being offered up for the search committee and for the shepherds and the entire worship experience to be with people of faith, the people of prayer is an honor. This morning we're going to frame the sermon with storytelling from scripture. Our storytellers are two people you know, Kaya Coleman and Grayson Borders. Kaya and Grayson are both interns here at Fourth Avenue. Kaya has been with you since fall and Grayson's been with you all of her life. I've had the honor of having them as students last term together, two of the brightest students I've had. But all that to say, please listen carefully to what you're about to hear. And Jesus crossed over to the other side of the shore in a boat. As a crowd gathered around him, he stayed by a seashore. A synagogue official named Jairus ran up to him, fell at his feet, earnestly imploring, my daughter is sick to the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she may get well and live. And Jesus went with him, and a crowd pressed in on him, gathering around him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak for she thought, if I just touch his garment, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around the crowd. Who touched my garment? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And Jesus looked around in the crowd to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, realizing what had happened to her, came and fell before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And while he was speaking, Synagogue officials rushed up to them. Jairus, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was spoke, he said to Jairus, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. As they entered Jairus' house, there was a commotion, people weeping and wailing. And Jesus said, why the commotion? Why the weeping? Why the wailing? The little girl has not died, for she is only asleep. 
And they began laughing at him, putting them all out, taking along only his disciples, Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. He takes along his, the child's father and mother, and entering the little girl's room, he says to her, Talitha Kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately she began walking around. And immediately they were astounded, for she was 12 years old. And Jesus gave them strict, instru strict instructions to not let anyone know and that she should be given something to eat. What just happened? What'd you see? What'd you hear? Two women uh, reading scripture. Uh, Fourth Avenue is pretty progressive church and proud of it. No, 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 no. What did you What did you see? What did you hear? What you saw and heard was the result of two people who studied two texts. That is to say, that these two went to the text and stayed long enough in the text for meaning. To surface. Then, after they had immersed themselves in these stories, where each story fits, how it fits these two amongst the other two, to, to, to have four stories, Jesus walking on water, casting out demons, and the two that we heard, how it fits into Mark's larger story, that is, the questions that he asked, who is he? How do you respond to him? And will you follow him? After staying in the text long enough for meaning to surface, they memorized the story. They learned it word for word. They knew it so well they could recite it from memory. And then, after they'd memorized the text, they internalized the text. They internalized the story, internalized its plot, internalized its characters. They knew it by heart. Kaya became the storyteller Mark and the characters, Jairus and Jairus's entourage and the mourners and Jesus. And in fact, she could see and allowed us to see the little girl, 12 years old, first sick and then dead and then risen from the dead. And Grayson became Mark, the storyteller, and all the characters, the suffering woman, the protesting disciples, and Jesus. But their research, their memorization, their internalization was only prologue. Prologue for what we just experienced. For if we were paying attention, what we saw and what we heard Scripture told in such a way that we came close, scary close to its meaning for the first century audience and for the 21st century audience gathered here at 4th Avenue in beautiful 
Franklin, Tennessee. For Mark, the gospel writer is like an artist. He's painted the story with vivid detail. And it moves us. Did you notice Kaya and Grayson even embodying Mark's arrangement with such subtlety? Did you see that? Kaya telling the Jairus story. She steps forward for the telling, and then she steps back, pausing the story, allowing Grayson to step forward to tell the story of the woman with the hemorrhage in its entirety. Then Grayson steps back and allows Kaya to step forward to conclude the story of Jesus that she had paused. What you witnessed wasn't the Fourth Avenue two-step. What you witnessed was two storytellers embodying the movement of the story, embodying the form of the story, enacting scripture. Why? So that we don't miss the framing of the scenes that the gospel writer, this artist, Mark, has carefully sketched. It's Kaya, Grace and Kaya. Of course, you witnessed Jairus, the woman, Jairus, A, B, A, the 12-year-old girl sick, the woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years healed, and the 12-year-old girl raised from the dead. I'm claiming that Mark is an artist. And with the words that he uses and the stories that he tells and the way that he arranges those stories, he's an artist. And we're examining the stunning detail of his work, not for its aesthetic brilliance, though brilliantly aesthetic it is, but rather that we might absorb its meaning, be confronted by its all-consuming desire to demonstrate before our very eyes what it means to follow Jesus of Nazareth. But despite Kaya and Grayson's movement and Mark's deliberate, deliberate arrangement, we're tempted to stay on the outskirts of this story, settle into the framework that's Jairus. After all, that's the story where Jesus raises the dead. And isn't that the greatest power overall? I mean, he's got power over nature, power over evil, power over sickness, but power over death. We're tempted to settle into the Jairus story, focus on its familiar and steady frame and not peer deeply into the story that is the picture, the focus for Mark, the woman with the hemorrhage. We stay on the outskirts, which allows me as a preacher, we as Christians, to keep our distance from Mark's story when he tells us about the woman. Because what he says makes most male preachers uncomfortable to discuss. Woman bleeding. Frankly, I think that's a story that should be told in the segregated audience. Let's get the women over here and the men over there, then we can talk. But what Mark says makes some of us uncomfortable. What Mark does not say, what he doesn't say, but what he implies, that the woman's condition has made her unclean. That's what disturbs us so deeply. Disturbed by her uncleanness because her uncleanness impacts me. That's the issue for Jairus, or should I say, the religious leader who thinks like I do. 
Jairus now finally has the complete devotion of the one who can actually help. We're on our way to the house. When from the back of the crowd comes a woman whose bleeding won't stop, which means that everything she touches, everyone she touches is unclean. She's an untouchable. She's cut off from society. She's outcast. She can't marry, or if she's already married, grounds for divorce. Can she go to the temple? No. Synagogue? No. Could she party at Franklin's nicest restaurants? No. We don't know her name. We don't know her family. We can only guess at her age. We only know her by what she has, which makes her unclean. She's a person that infects everybody that she touches, everything that she touches. Or I'm part of the entourage of the synagogue official whom we know as Jairus. Jairus has connections. Jairus has widespread, broad, vibrant community support. I'm in his entourage, in the thick of the activity. And like every other person in the crowd, I think, uh-oh, this woman, she's unclean. If she touches me, she defiles me. I won't be rude, but I'll just kind of step back, lest she rub against me, lest she touch me, make me unclean. And what's she doing here anyway? Or I'm Jairus, and the focus is on me. I'm the synagogue official. She's way down the scale at the bottom. I think my situation is an emergency. Time is of the essence. This is life or death. She's been waiting 12 years. Why can't she wait another hour? And why is she even here in the first place? And then when the shattering news comes, if Jairus is like me, grief compounds, anger explodes. I knew it. I knew this would happen. This woman caused a delay that cost my daughter her life. But the problem with all that conjecture is that Mark doesn't tolerate such a vantage. Mark won't allow us to be so narcissistic. He won't let us look down our nose at somebody else whom we think is other. Mark's framework is all pointing to the woman. A, B, A, Jairus, the woman, Jairus. It's pointing inward. And what we know about the woman is a bit unsettling. Grayson, in her research, uncovered seven phrases that emphasize the woman's condition, her desperate situation. But just listen to Mark, and I think you can discover them too. The woman has suffered from a hemorrhage for 12 years. She's endured much at the hands of many physicians. Not the care of, not under the counsel of, not seeking a specialist, but at the hands of many physicians. She spent all that she had, emptied her savings account, liquidated her retirement, sold her car, got rid of her jewelry, auctioned off her furniture, took a second mortgage out on the house, spent all that she had, and she hasn't got any, any better, no improvement whatsoever. In fact, she's gotten worse. Grayson, like a young Mark, said each phrase so slowly, pausing between the phrases, allowing the description to sink in, sink into our heads, sink into our hearts. 
The descriptions grow on one another. All seven of them grow on one another. So that the seventh and the final description, in fact, she's worse off than she was at the start, is heard with exasperation. Exasperated from what this woman feels. We start off with pity for her. I mean, we're, it's, it's, she's, she's a source of pity for us. Twelve years of hemorrhaging, oh my. But that pity turns to empathy. She spent all that she had and she didn't get any better. And the empathy turns to exasperation. She had only grown worse. This story is told from the woman's perspective. She suffered for 12 years, knocking down the door of the medical community to no avail. She's at the end of her rope. She's at her wit's end. She's out of options. She's exasperated. And the story is told from somebody for who has not seen hope lately, hasn't had help come pay a visit lately. What motivates her? Exasperation? Desperation? Options out? I don't know. Looks like it. Jesus says, he calls it faith. This woman's bleeding, this woman's uncleanness makes us uncomfortable. But what also makes us deeply uncomfortable is that she's heard the kind of words we dread. There's a malignancy in the colon. Your son's condition is critical. There's nothing we can do. She has the very experience that half of our prayers are spent pleading that we never experience. But experience them we do. Some of you have lived in the parched desert of depression. Some of you have experienced the relentless pain of a disease, marooned in solitude. You know the grim ordeal when the sickness won't move. You've experienced life under assault, conditions that shut down all these distractions like joy and peace and tranquility to experience a killing invader somewhere deep in our body, tormented by pain. Half of us are praying, spare us, and the other half are praying, why? And then we hear about Jesus, and of course we seek him out. We seek him out out of our despair, out of our exasperation, because we've ran out of options. And Jesus sees our faith. For generations, we've struggled to understand and articulate the realities of this story, sometimes expressing it in painting, sometimes in music. Long ago, we used to sing to one another this hymn that told of our needs and our hope. If your body suffers pain and your health you can't regain and your soul is almost sinking in despair, Jesus knows the pain you feel. He can save and he can heal. Take your burdens to the Lord and leave them there. That song was sung so many years ago. It didn't make it into the last hard copy hymnal that we published. It's never been on a PowerPoint slide. But the sentiments are so real, the pain and the hope. This is our story. Mark asks us to listen to the story of the woman. He asks us to believe what he says. He asks us to empathize, but he wants more. Mark is like a film director. And 
at some point he stands and he asks us to get off our seats and stands and then he beckons us to come forward to come forward not to meet him on the stage but to step onto the stage and into the screen and into the world that he describes and when we step into that world it's suddenly hot and arid and dusty and the buildings are brown and the blue seas at our back we are we're gathering around a group of people who are moving with Jesus who are walking with a synagogue official Look around at all these people in these stories. Jesus calms the storm at sea. Thirteen Jewish men are built. Jesus casts out the legion of demons when he's gone over to the country of the Gadarenes, the Gentiles. That's why there's pigs over there. And then he cures the hemorrhaging woman and raises a child from the dead. She's 12 years old. Jewish men, Gentile men. Women, men, children, adults. It pretty much covers everybody. Everybody's in this story, even you and me. And these four stories that begin with the one we looked at last week, God in the boat, carries the question from one story to the next, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And in every one of them, fear and faith are at play, but only one story, only one of all those stories is is someone commended for her faith, and it's the woman the woman with the hemorrhage, the one that we thought might be an outcast, the one that we claimed was unclean. Jesus says, go in peace, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. In a room that smells of disinfectant and medication, from the beds of despair, we have called on Jesus or we will call on Jesus. And sometimes we receive the power of which we ask. I bet half the mothers, half the fathers in this room would recall the instance when his little temperature was beginning to spike, 100, 102, 104. Calls were made. People were praying. You're talking to the doctor. It looks like it's 105. Cold compacts on the forehead and on the wrist are not working. The doctor says, take him to the emergency immediately. I'll meet you there. (laughs) And then you take the limp body out to the car, you open the door, and suddenly, miraculously, the fever breaks. You don't know. There's no medical explanation. It just broke. And his eyes open, and his body comes back to life. The tumor that seemed out of control suddenly remits and vanishes. But for every one of those stories, there are other stories. The cancer is spread to the lymph nodes. If he makes it through the night, we'll operate in the morning. And he didn't make it through the night. I say to you, as I said last week, be careful what you ask for. If you ask God to come into your life, Expect, like the woman, to be filled with fear and trembling. Why? Because he is God. But when that happens, when you respond in faith, you are be launched on a journey, a journey into a reality that will take you deeper into the more meaningful places than you ever imagined, than you ever bargained for at the beginning. You will see Jesus as a great physician, But you'll see him, too, as God in the boat. And when that happens, you have begun a journey of faith. 
a journey that Jesus commends to the woman and commends to us. Go in peace, he says. Your faith has made you well. And once we acknowledge Jesus' power, who he is, and we respond with faith, even a faith that comes out of exasperation and optionlessness, faith like the woman, once we identify with the woman, we are asked to take the next and most crucial step, the most difficult step of our lives, to see the woman and to see others as Jesus saw the woman and sees us, not as an outcast, but as a human being, a human being who was worthy of love, worthy of kindness, worthy of acceptance, worthy of affirmation, to say to that person, go in peace, my brother, go in peace, my sister. Jesus doesn't declare her unclean. He doesn't see her as an issue, as a problem. He sees her as a human being. And you know, as I do, the sad truth, the reputation that Christianity has gathered over the last generation, the last several years, that we've separated people, identifying the unclean and separating ourselves from them. We label them and mark them and distance ourselves from them and reject them. We do that by gender, by race, by sexual orientation, by their religion, by their political loyalty, and we say, unclean. But when you've been healed, even out of exasperation, when you've become the woman, with fear and trembling, you look at Jesus, and he looks at you. And now you are able to see others as he sees you. Doesn't it say somewhere in scripture, love as we have been loved? Wasn't Jesus asked what's the greatest commandment? And he said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That only happens once we've been to the woman's position, recognizing that after our feeble, exasperated touch, that he can say to us, go in peace, my daughter, your faith has made you well. And we can say, go in peace, my sister. Go in peace, my brother. Kaya and Grayson, storytellers, taking on Mark and the woman and Jairus and the protesting disciples and Jesus. Their research, their memorization, their internalization of the story as this sermon is only prologue. Prologue for what you can now experience. Because if you pay close attention what you see and what you hear will be scripture told in such a way that we will come close, scary close, to its meaning for the first century audience and for the Fourth Avenue Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. Jesus got in the boat to cross to the other side. A crowd gathered around him, so he stayed by the seashore. A synagogue official named Jairus ran up to him, fell at his feet, earnestly imploring, My daughter is sick to the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she may get well and live. 
then Jesus went with him as a crowd gathered around him, pressing in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather grew worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd. Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And Jesus looked around in the crowd to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, realizing what had happened to her, came and fell before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, synagogue officials come from Jairus' home. Jairus, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? But Jesus, overhearing what had been said, looks at Jairus and says, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Entering Jairus' home, Jesus takes along Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. People are weeping and wailing. There is this loud commotion. Jesus looks at them and says, why the commotion? Why the weeping and wailing? The little girl has not died, for she is only asleep. They began laughing at him. Putting them all out, Jesus takes along the child's father and mother, as well as his companions. Entering the room where the little girl is, Jesus places his hands on her and says to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately she began walking around. And immediately they were astounded, for she was 12 years old. And Jesus gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and that she should be given something to eat. 